Welcome to episode three of Inside the Lens. Uh, this is going to be a really fun episode with uh, my guest, Ray Maxwell. We dive into color science, human perception, the differences between how a camera operates and how we see the world, the psychology uh, in many ways of, uh, of human vision. We dive into the geek side of photography in this episode of Inside the Lens. I'm sitting down here with uh, what I consider to be one of the experts in color science. I'm so I'm so honored to be sitting down with you, Ray. Uh, I'm here with Ray Maxwell. And Ray, before we get into your whole introduction, I was first introduced to you uh, through a podcast that you had a long time ago, uh, at least a couple of years ago, anyhow, uh, ancient times in internet era uh, called Maxwell's House. And I was enamored by that. It really opened my eyes to some wonderful things in photography that weren't often discussed. Uh, and I just I thought that it was such a wonderful topic, a wonderful uh, kind of adventure that you had gone on from episode to episode. And to be honest, this podcast kind of follows along in those footsteps to some degree. We'll meander into different directions, but uh, I, I like to think that you inspired this in a great way. So I'm, I'm glad that we have you early on in this. Thank you for being here, Ray. So you love to talk about these topics, but many photographers do. You're the one that has all of the, as I say, the expert knowledge. Uh, where does that come from? What, what's your history uh, in color science and, and all of these different ideas that uh, have to do with human perception? Uh, I spent a fair bit of my career working for a company called McDonald Detweiler, which dealt in remote sensing. Uh, we did uh, processing of imagery from satellites and from airborne sensors. Uh, aircraft sensors. I designed some aircraft sensors that used early uh, solid-state arrays. And uh, at any rate, after that, I went to work for Creo, which is a company that builds high-tech uh, printing equipment, that is, uh, pre-press equipment. And uh, I worked specifically in the area of very high-quality uh, halftone proofing and then later inkjet proofing. And so that's my background. And of course, when I got into that, that's how I got into color science. Which leads into sort of an impossible question, Ray, uh, the one that I want to start off this conversation with. <laughs> and, and laugh at it if you will, but what is color? Start off almost all of my talks on this topic and ask that question, what is color? Because, or where does it exist? And invariably uh, from an audience, I usually get answers like, well, it's part of, it's what, it's in a dye or it's in a pigment or, uh, you know, this sort of thing, or it's the light coming out of a uh, LCD monitor. And in truth, it only color as human beings talk about it, only exists inside the human brain. It is stimulated by certain fat physical stimuluses uh, from light and so forth externally to us, but the perception of a color is the decoding of that information inside our brain. And for instance, other animals don't see color the way we do, and not all humans see color the way we do. And if I say, you know, you and I agree, oh, this is red, well, how do I know that your perception of red is really exactly the same as mine? 
Well, if you've got uh, if you if you've trained your dog to go and fetch a red toy versus a blue toy, how does it know what red is in the same relation that you do? Right. I mean, it might differentiate red and blue because you've taught it something. But how do you really know what the dog is seeing? You don't. (laughs) But a bee, not only do they have a fourth, but I mean, they're seeing things inherently fundamentally different because they have compound eyes and they're not seeing the exact same thing. Their brain is wired so different than ours, starting right within the eyes and and then however their brain interprets that, we can't even fathom to imagine that. That's correct. Um, I remember reading a, a white paper or a scientific article at some point uh, in the past little while that said that humans could possibly be, well, I mean, most of us are trichromats. I'm not sure what the word would be, quadrochromats or something like that. If you had a fourth cone in your eye, a very rare genetic mutation found primarily in women, I think, and a very hard thing to detect because our brains aren't wired to detect that input from our eyes. Uh, And so you have to kind of train yourself to do that. But there are so many levels of complexity within that. And humans, uh, chimpanzees, and a handful of other animals I know are trichromats as we are. But the dog that I mentioned earlier is a dichromat, right? They have two different kinds of cones in their eyes. Uh, So, I mean, that that develops into a sense of color accuracy, right? I mean, how many colors can we see? Well, I, I really, man, I really uh, shy away from that when they, uh, people always say, <laughs> well, a, a lot of advertisers advertise uh, our device will produce X number of colors and so forth. Uh, it b- brings us into the LAB color space. And it brings us into a delta E of one, which is supposedly uh, a difference in that color space of one unit, which is the smallest increment that most trained human beings can see a difference between two color patches side by side. Well, you've mentioned something very key there. I mean, number one, side by side. If you spread them apart, can you tell the difference or not? I mean, chances are absolutely not. Um, And so when I go into a store and I see, oh, now this TV advertises it can produce two million colors. Well, I'm going to spend the extra money on this one that can do six million colors. And, you know, it's marketing terms of course. I mean, human vision at the best of times might be around a million, uh, probably less than that, of course, because the the greatest connections you say is going to be side by side. And you'll never experience that in a real world environment uh, based on what the output of color could be from any electronic device. Like, why do you use different colors in print versus, you know, reflected light versus transmitted light? And it's sort of the same idea. Paper reflects all colors, red, green and blue. So what we want to do when we print on something is we want to control the amount of red, green, and blue that's reflected from the white paper. So we use a cyan, a magenta, and yellow dye. Well, why do we use those? Why don't we use red, green, and blue? Well, because a red dye only reflects red and absorbs green and blue. Magenta is reflecting red and blue and absorbs only green, so it's minus green. And yellow uh, reflects red and blue and, uh, uh, sorry, red and green and, uh, and absorbs blue. So yellow is minus blue, magenta is minus green, and cyan is minus red. So we control red. We're always trying to control the red, green, and blue stimulus to the eye. So, Ray, I want to ask you a really dangerous question here. Uh, Why does my printer have 12 ink tanks? Inkjet printing. All of those dyes or pigments are transparent. You can see one through the other. 
All right. They're like filters being laid down and they're transparent. And so the rules for mixing them are called the subtractive color rules in that context. However, if you start to mix opaque pigments like paint or oil paints or that, it's a whole new set of rules. Okay. Well, first of all, let's back up. And if you go to almost any any printing press at all, you will find that it has a cyan, magenta, and a yellow printing unit. And then it has a black one. And people say, well, wait a minute. If I put down all three cyan, magenta, yellow, don't I get black? Why do I need a black printing unit? And by the way, uh, when you get in the printing industry, you'll hear them talk about CMYK, well, why do they call black K? That's the last letter and thing, but that's not why it's called K. It's the key channel. It's laid down first and they register everything to it. So it's the key channel. That's the black channel. Now, the reason they have to have it is a the if you lay down they <laughs> it's an economics. The cyan, magenta, and yellow are not perfect pure dyes. Now, if you if you will go back to ectochrome and kodachrome film, remember that stuff <laughs> had more inks, okay, uh, to extend the color gamut. And uh, in the printing industry, they usually talk about hi-fi color, which is it uses seven colors. And let's see if I can remember. It's cyan, magenta, yellow, black, and then it's orange, green, and I think I can't remember whether it's, I think it's red. At any rate, they use seven colors. Uh, my inkjet printer behind me, I've got a 4900 Epson 4900, and that that thing uses 11 inks at any given moment. And uh, it, there are two reasons why it has more inks. There's extending the color gamut, but in addition, oh boy, here we go down another rat hole. It uses. Um, stochastic screening because when you pr that's another thing when you print on paper you cannot print if you had black ink in the printer you can't print gray so you fool the eye by printing little small dots and the density of the dots gives the eye the illusion of gray and we do the same thing with all the other colors we uh, print little bitty dots and we cluster them in various densities to produce a shade of cyan, magenta, or yellow. Now, here's the problem. Stochastic screens are wonderful except for one thing, and that's when you start spreading the dots really widely apart, the eye can see them. And it immediately says, oh, that's not a solid light cyan, let's say. Oh, that's a collection of individual dots widely spaced. And we can see this very easily if you just look at newsprint that's done in color. Yeah. Uh, if it's at like a regular reading distance, like you're reading the newspaper, you probably don't notice it. But all you have to do is put it closer to your eye and the illusion is broken uh, because it's done very, very cheaply. Exactly. So what a color space it can cover and 
dealing with the uh, with the drawbacks of stochastic screening, which is excellent screening, except for that one problem. Well, and, and so most printers, you'd find the ink called photocyan, photomagenta. Uh, and then so like my printer has red, blue and green as inks, uh, the CMYK stuff. It has a regular black. It has uh, a photo black. It has a gray, a photo gray. And every different printer is going to have a different algorithm to mix all of these together to overcome some of those issues. But at the end of the day, it's designed to, uh, to mimic the reflective properties of what we might see in the world around us, right? Exactly. It, it all comes back to we want to control the amount of reflected light reflected into the eye to stimulate, the, stimulate those red, green, and blue sensors, the cones. Now, human vision is, uh, again, it's a strange thing because we we have sort of a narrow view of the electromagnetic spectrum. As you said, you know, a bee can have uh, a view of the ultraviolet spectrum as well. So then a camera, you know, the, the typical camera sensor, uh, it's probably going to see things differently than us. Uh, so how then... How do we go through this process of seeing a beautiful scene in front of us, taking a picture of that, seeing it on our computer screen, and then printing it and having all of those colors look roughly the same? Well, you can write a book on that. Yeah, I'm sure. I was going to say, I, <laughs> on my bookshelf behind me right now, I've got some books that are some of them three inches thick that that cover that topic. Yeah, that's. I think <laughs> I think we better break that down somehow into smaller. No, we will. But let, let's start at the beginning. Let's start at the camera. So the camera is our first barrier to entry into this to see the world differently. The camera is collecting light, I'm guessing, in a different way than our eyes do. So how is that different? Okay, well, it's different in a whole bunch of ways. Let's start out. <laughs> first of all, there are red, green, and blue sensors in uh, in our camera uh you know, in the uh, uh, solid state array that's inside our camera. Well, uh, I, I want to sort of say something a bit different to that, though, because it's not the sensors that are red, blue and green. It's a filter in front of the sensors, right? The sensor itself just collects the intensity of light. And uh, it, the, the most common pattern for this is a, what they call the Bayer pattern of a color filter array. And so when you're shooting a camera and say you're collecting the raw data, the actual data in that file has no color information per se, but it has in front of it um, a, a filter array. And it knows exactly which little photosite, which is the technical term of a pixel pickup on the sensor, uh, which one of those is representative of green, which one represents Correct. blue, which one represents red. And then through right. some uh, magic, uh, which, you know, that's another whole rat hole called demosaicing, and we, maybe that's another discussion that we have. Right. Um, but the camera creates what amounts to a color photograph. Uh, am, am, I, am I rambling in the right direction? In the right direction. It creates red, green, and blue data. It creates numbers. Now, I'm going to go off on a little tangent here because it's one of my favorite topics. You know, they they will invariably tell you, oh, this is, a, let's say, a 20 megapixel camera. Okay. Now, what it means is it has 10 million green pixels, 5 million red, 5 million blue. And yet, after you demosaic this Bayer pattern, it will output 20 RGB values. And you say, wait a minute, isn't that cheating? Is it really 20 megapixels? Well, it turns out that the human eye 
when we look at the rods and the cones and the and the rods pick up this luminous information our color vision has one-third the resolution of our luminance vision and this was used back in the early days of color tv the bandwidth to send the luminance information uh, is three times the bandwidth of the information sent for the chrominance or color information. And they take advantage of this handicap of our eyes, one-third color resolution versus the luminance resolution, when they build this Bayer pattern and demosaic it. Now, there is a camera, the Foveon, okay, that has a red, green, and a blue sensor at every pixel. They're actually stacked vertically. And the light has to pass through each and every one of them. The Foveon, right. you say, it, it isn't actually a camera. It's a technology owned by Sigma. Yeah. Sigma puts that uh, technology into uh, all of their in-house built cameras. And I'm sure that they'd license it if somebody else would want to use it. Although I haven't seen it in many other pieces of equipment beyond what Sigma, produce, uh, Sigma produces in-house. Why is it not selling like hotcakes? Why doesn't every other person uh, uh, license it? The re now, this is... Wow. This is Ray Maxwell's opinion, okay? This is not scientific <laughs> fact because it's overkill because our eyes can't use all that information. And so the other scientists who invented the Bayer pattern, invented color television, have said, why send extra color information when the eye can't perceive it? If the brain can't perceive it, why send? It's the same thing with, M uh, this is going on with tangent, MPEG-3 music. There are things that our ears can't hear, so they take it out to save information uh, and uh, compress it and send it. Now, audiophiles will argue that. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Audiophile uh, will always, always argue that. But I think that there's another area of, uh, of human nature involved in this, too. And it has to do with why HD DVD lost to Blu-ray and the battle between Betamax and VHS went one direction and not the other. Um, I think it just has to do with patents and money. Yeah. Uh, you know, if if the Foveon sensor was uh, sort of non-patent encumbered, you better believe that every other camera manufacturer would be promoting that they have better color accuracy than the other. Uh, but again, it all comes down to the bottom line as well. Right. Uh, actually, uh, the Foveon has some drawbacks in that it has to go through three layers and uh, you're going to have a rough time making a Foveon chip that is as sensitive to light as a Bayer pattern chip. So, you know, True enough. Every, and everything's always a compromise. And if you're promoting the fact that uh, your your ISO values for your camera are now rising into the hundreds of thousands, uh, and uh, that's a marketing number just like megapixels often is, you know, it's, it's funny because if you think about it right now, Ray, you and I, if we walked into a camera store, we can't go and buy a bad camera. No. They, they, they don't make them anymore. Uh, <laughs> right. And so if you take a bad picture, it's not the camera's fault anymore. You know, there's no way that you could blame the camera because the technology has just gotten so good. But it's all based on the same sort of fundamentals, at least in my camera and your camera. I don't have a Sigma camera, so I'm assuming that uh, that most of what we're using, 99% uh, of all photographers out there, probably even more, um, are faced with this sort of Bayer pattern and this demosaicing. But I do want to say, you, you had mentioned on the idea that um, a, a camera, say if I have the Canon 5D Mark II, which is, I've, I've had some converted for extra spectrum photography, which is the next topic. Uh, but 
if I'm going to take that camera, it's 21.1 megapixels, I think, is the uh, the effective resolution. But it actually has around 22 million photo sites on the sensor that actually detect information. If you dig into the details and the uh, and the manual, you'll find that those numbers are a little bit different. So when a picture is being created uh, from a digital camera, and of course, all the software and the algorithms are going to vary in, in different ways, but that purely simplified version of it is it will take an array of four of those little photo sites, two greens, one red and one blue, and that together represents one RGB color value. And then it shifts over by one. So it's still using two of the values from the previous pixel and it's adding two new ones and now it's calculating a new RGB value and that sits next to the previous one and so on and so forth. And I'm sure that there's some magic secret sauce in there uh, as technology continues to improve. The algorithms and the scientists get paid very well uh, to find ways to improve the way that this creates a visible photograph and how it reduces noise and improves sharpness and all of those different things. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, an image that somewhat represents the way that we saw the world is created, right? Yes. Well, let's well, let's go over a few other things that are different between how the camera sees things and how our eyes see things. Let's first of all talk about uh, resolution and uh, talk about field of view. Uh, of course, our eyes can detect things over about a 190 degree field of view. Uh, they can detect motion, but they if you put your hand out beside your head and uh, look at or and look straight ahead, you can see that you're wiggling fingers, but you, you, you may not even be able to count how many fingers someone's holding up beside your head. You can see it's there, but there's no sharp vision in the peripheral vision. Your sharp vision is in an area of the eye called the, the fovea. And uh, it's about at at normal kind of viewing distance. It's about the size of a dime. <laughs> it's quite small. It's two degrees. Uh, that is a two degree subtended angle out of your eye is the fovea. And you when you look at any scene, the human moves that fovea around if they want any sharp information, like when they're reading or something like that. And so. Uh, 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 you are scanning subconsciously. You're not even aware that your eye's doing it. It's doing all of these little jumps and, and collecting information and then creates a whole image in your brain. And so far, you but okay, I want to say the whole image is a very relative term here, yes. because your eyes might look at a thousand things in a minute if you're really jumping around because you're nervous and, and you're, you're you're scared and maybe some survival instincts are are, are kicking in. Uh, but you're never going to see everything. No, there is no way for you to look at everything because some things are less important than others. Uh, and so when you make that sort of mental image or a memory that you can recollect later on. Uh, all of those unimportant things were never looked at and thereby never recorded by your brain, right? Right, exactly. And, and, and again, because of survival things, it tends to filter out things that uh, are unimportant. And by the way, it's very sensitive, your eye and brain system, it's very sensitive to motion. Uh, and uh, uh, picking up motion. And it may be a, you know, a rustling leaf over here uh, beside the path you're working on, or it may be a saber-toothed tiger, but you better notice it. The leaf will, may not hurt you, but the saber-toothed tiger might eat you. 
Uh, this is a perfect segue to an anecdote that I have. Uh, driving down the highway near here, there's uh, there's a forest that earlier in the year uh, usually has less uh, leaves around it, so you can see a little bit deeper into it. But some of the trees uh, have been knocked down, and their entire root structure is is visible from the side of the highway. Now, it's indented uh, a couple of rows of trees in, but you have this root structure that's all, it's got a ton of dirt on it. Uh, it's basically a big brown blob in the forest. And every single time I drive by, I can't help it. My head turns and I have to look at it like it's a bear or it's a predator or something. And the first couple of times I realize, well, what is that? Oh, it's, it's a tree. And the second time I'm, I ask myself, well, why the heck am I still like gravitating towards that? Well, I mean, it has to do with the way that our brains are wired to notice that saber toothed tiger or that bear in the forest that's that's about to run out and get you. We can't help it. This is just the way that our instincts kind of uh, have evolved over time. It's a pattern that's out of place. You know, you're used to all of these trees and whatnot going by on the road. And suddenly there is some shape, form, whatever that is a, a that breaks the pattern and that gets your attention. And we're great. Uh, we, we, our eyes, we see patterns that aren't even there. <laughs> That's a whole nother topic. Uh, that, well, and that, I mean, that develops into the whole ideas of optical illusions and how those work. And it really just brings a point just at, as a blanket statement that uh, we see things in a very organic and non-digital kind of way. Uh, and so then to, to recreate that in a digital world is, is kind of fun because, I mean, there are some colors that our brains create out of thin air, right? And this kind of, it, I, I love this part of the conversation and maybe we'll, we'll end uh, with this kind of uh, rat hole here because um, if we think about color and please chime in if I'm if I'm off my rocker because uh, I'm not the color scientist in the conversation but if we see color coming into our eye at exactly the same uh, same point of say a blue wavelength and a yellow wavelength our eye might interpret that not as blue and yellow but would see it more as a green our perception would kind of average things out in in a way that makes more sense to us right yeah, I, I think I would choose other colors to illustrate this. Uh, for instance, sure. let me let me explain uh, because I know I know where you're going here. Um, if I have two LEDs, a red one and a green one, and I mix the light coming out of them, uh, I am equally stimulating your red and green sensors in your eye. That will make your brain perceive yellow. All right. I can do the same thing with a single LED that puts out a single wavelength of light that's midway between the green and red wavelength. So it equally stimulates. Remember, I said that the, the sensitivity overlaps a lot. So if I uh, put a, a single wavelength of light uh, into your eye, and it simulates the red and the green, you will see yellow. So I can create the the perception of yellow with two different spectral inputs. One is a single wavelength of light between red and green, and one is red and green at two different wavelengths. So I can play, if we're talking music, a chord, if you will, into your eye with the red and green, two notes at once, and you will perceive yellow. Or I can put a, play a single note or a single frequency that's between red and green, and you will see yellow. Now, Here's where we're going, where we start to see weird. Where, where does this logic break down? Okay, Ray? where it breaks down is 
I can take a red and a blue. That's the shortest wavelength and the longest wavelength. I can take a red and a blue note, if you will, put those into your eye, and you will see a color we call magenta. All right? There is no single wavelength of light that I can send into your eye that will make you see magenta. I have to send a cord in. So there is no single wavelength of light that exists to cause that stimulus in your brain or that perception of magenta. There is no real single wavelength of light in the world that causes you to see magenta. If you were to split a, uh, you know, a, a white light into a prism, uh, you won't see magenta represented within that prism. It's, it's not going to be in a rainbow either. Uh, you might see things that look kind of similar around the violet or the red, but it's not going to be magenta. Only when you were to take one end of the spectrum and overlap it over the other end of the spectrum, will you be able to create that color, right? That's correct. Now, it, this is fun because this, again, illustrates that concept that we're strange creatures. Uh, we don't see the world as, you know, a color being a line, but I, I like to envision it more as, as a circle. Uh, and the ends of the, uh, of the color spectrum that our brains kind of perceive and the way that our minds map it kind of connect that circle together with magenta. And I know that that's probably it doesn't have any practical sense, but it's a logical way for me to envision where that imaginary color comes from. Right. And if we look at the if you if you get into the LAB color space and LCH color space, the hue angle, sure enough, the it, it comes around in a circle and, and and works exactly the way you just described. Wow. <laughs> I, I don't know where the conversation can go from there because we could spill it off into a million different directions. Um <laughs> You know, let's talk uh, for, for just a minute about then how could uh, like a, a computer screen or a camera, it has to collect uh, sort of these cords of light and then re-represent them on the camera's LCD screen or on our computer monitor as a cord to illustrate that concept of magenta, right? But it's all mimicking human vision. This has just, it has to do with the way that we see the world in a very strange way and how the technology that we're using in an everyday way uh, to, to mimic mimic that same kind of concept. Um, the one thing that we haven't covered, though, is dynamic range. Right. And I know that human vision has a far greater dynamic range, whatever that word means, than a camera does. So why don't we dig into that in the last few minutes of this conversation and see where those differences lie? Sure. Well, the uh, human eye uh, basically adapts to the incident light level uh, in a very organic and clever way such that we can see in very low light level situations and extremely bright light. In fact, if you study human senses, uh, almost all of them are what are referred to mathematically as logarithmic. They're not linear. In other words, if you double the power of a particular stimulus, we don't perceive that it's doubled. We just perceive that it's increased slightly. And uh, This, you can this keep... applies to, to hearing uh, equally as well as it does to vision, right? Right. It applies to almost all the senses. By the way, I, I have to uh, go off on a little tangent here. If you study any of these, if you start studying color science, I mean, I started studying color science. I thought, well, I'm going to give this two weeks and <laughs> I'm going to study this and learn all about color science. Well, 20 years later, I'm still studying. And uh, what I found out is if you start digging into color science, you end up 
studying neuroscience, the science of the brain. And I might add, I don't know whether you know this, do you know who Bill Atkinson is? Oh, that name's familiar, but put it in place for me. Okay, Bill Atkinson is an Apple fellow. He was one of the first people who worked on the Lisa and the Macintosh. That's where I know and, the name from. Right, and he he wrote HyperCard. He um, he he did Mac Paint. He did the first illustrative graphic user interface program in computers. He's a real pioneer. But before he started writing all that software, he was this close to finishing his Ph.D. in neuroscience. And today he retired. I mean, he made tons of money from his early work at Apple and he does nothing but nature photography now. And on the side, he is one of the top color science experts in the field. And he ha he built some of the early good profiles for the Epson printers. Now, the, the company profiles now are very good, but some of the early ones weren't so good. And so he built special ones and handed them out free to everybody because he had the understanding and he had the equipment to build them. But what I'm again, what I'm trying to get back to is the reason he's one of the top color scientist is because he knows neurochemistry of the brain, which I think is fascinating. Well, and I think that's paramount to this whole conversation, right? It, you have to understand what our brains are doing in order to understand what the heck color actually is to wrap it around full circle. And um, in terms of, of human memory, I think that it, it really applies uh, quite strongly to this whole dynamic range topic as well, where if I'm sitting in a room and I might not have any lights on, but I've got a bright window next to me. I look outside the window, my eyes organically adjust, my pupils shrink down to collect in less light. I can look outside, I can enjoy that. I can look back inside and have a sip of my coffee or tea and have a great conversation. And then when I'm going home, I'll remember how beautiful it was outside, how nice that kitchen was decorated, the clothing that people were uh, were wearing, you know, the, the dog that was underneath the table that was begging for scraps, all of these things at different light levels. My brain kind of translates that all to be the same, right? And also, you know, if I was in that kitchen before, this is another tangent, another rat hole. If I was in that kitchen before, uh, I might have memories from previous times I was there that affect the recollection of the last time that I was there. The smell of cookies might have been better the last time. And I'll remember those cookies smelling better this time uh, because they've always smelled good. Um, and so it's, it's a very organic and fluid process. But the camera, just like when we see only a thousand things in a minute, the camera sees everything in an instant. And so it can't differentiate between that bright outside window and that dark under the table dog begging for scraps. It has to see it all at once. And in that, con uh, in that construct, then it has to break down because it doesn't have the ability to see the extreme bright outside light and the deep shadows inside all within one frame. Technology might get there at some point, uh, mm -hmm. but it's not there yet, right? In addition, I, I might point out one other thing about dynamic range, and that is when we get into the very low light level area, our cones quit working and only the rods work. And you see essentially in black and white in very low, low light level situations. And the people who make use of this are astronomers uh, when they're looking at very dim objects in the sky. And I used to play in this area. Uh, you, you used to. And by the way, you have more rods in the periphery of your vision than you do in the fovea. 
So if you want to see a very faint object, you use what's known as averted gaze. You look a little to the side of it, and suddenly you can see this nebula or this uh, galaxy through your telescope because that's where the rods are, which are your low-light sensors. And by the way, it can take up to 30 minutes for them to, to adjust to very low light levels. As soon as you look into bright light, it kind of, uh, again, your system adjusts to handle that higher dynamic range. But, uh, and that's I why you have, uh, you have like red flashlights that astronomers will use because it's a very dim light in an area of the eye that uh, won't affect those rods. Uh, right. And so that you can still see things without affecting your night vision to any great degree. Also, you'll find that in... Uh, aircraft cockpits, red light, uh, so that when they look out the windows, uh, their night vision isn't destroyed. Like you said, Ray, you've got books behind you that are like three inches thick that probably <laughs> cover one of the talking points that we've discussed in this conversation. So, I mean, I think this this, this conversation is ripe to happen again in everything from uh, color calibration to uh, to the, the the science of how we see. And uh, I, I think I, if if you like it, we'll have you back on at some point in the future. Uh, but we we've we've gabbed for about forty odd minutes here, so we should end it there because if we go down any more rat holes, we'll be here for about four hours. And we'll still have more to talk about. Um, Ray, you know, I, it, it took me a while to, to find you online and to have this conversation. Is there any place where people can go and see the work that you do or to, to get in touch with you? Well, uh, I'm retired now and uh, I, I'm, I'm not doing very, I, I do occasionally like this next week, I'm le lecturing at a photo club but uh i i i basically have shut that down uh i i i'm now flying full-scale airplanes uh model airplanes model helicopters and quad camera carrying quadcopters in the movie industry here in vancouver <laughs> that's oh, that's so much fun I only do that two or three times a year, but I'm keeping a low profile. <laughs> well, then for for this uh, for this podcast, if anybody has any questions to bring to Ray, bring them to me and we will wrap another conversation around that in the future. Sure. All right. Thank you so much for having this uh, little chat with us, Ray. It's It's been a, a pleasure. Uh, I'm honored again to have you here. I enjoyed it very much. Thanks, Don. Thanks. That was awesome. Uh, Ray Maxwell is a wonderful human being, uh, a brilliant uh, photographer and, uh, and photo scientist, I'll call him. And having him on this uh, show so early on was a pleasure, a delight. Uh, and as I said early on, it was an honor to have him here. So uh, maybe he'll be back. I'm not sure. But I hope you enjoyed this conversation uh, that uh, winds down episode three of Inside the Lens. Stay tuned for the next one. Mm -hmm.